This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Physician Burnout. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. The Association of American Medical Colleges, or AAMC, published a report in 2021 estimating that the United States could see an estimated shortage of up to 124,000 physicians by the year 2034. There are many reasons for this shortfall. One is simply that the population is growing. Right now, there is also a large number of marginalized individuals, rural dwellers, and folks without health insurance who are not utilizing healthcare services or underutilizing them. If all of those people began fully utilizing healthcare services, then that would vastly increase the number of physicians and staff needed in the workforce. Finally, a huge contributor to physician shortage is simply the number of physicians available in the workforce. In the next decade, more than 40% of currently working physicians are estimated to reach retirement age. And while we can't do much about that, there is another alarming statistic that is driving physicians out of the workforce, and that is the high rate of physician burnout. The Mayo Clinic published a study in 2014 surveying both physicians and non-physicians for burnout. They found that more than half of the surveyed physicians had at least one symptom of burnout, which had increased from a similar study in 2011. This was higher than burnout seen in the general working population. And that number has only increased in recent years with the added stress and strain of the COVID-19 pandemic. Merriam-Webster defines burnout as exhaustion of physical or emotional strength or motivation, usually as a result of prolonged stress or frustration. 
In medicine, the International Classification of Diseases defines burnout as a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. It is characterized by three dimensions. One, feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion. Two, increased mental distance from one's job or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to one's job. And three, reduced professional efficacy. But what is driving all of this burnout and what can we do about it? To help us answer these questions, I have invited a nationwide leader in physician wellness. Dr. Lakshmi Mehta is a professor of internal medicine and cardiovascular disease and serves as vice chair for wellness for the Department of Internal Medicine and the director of the Gabby Health and Wellbeing Program at Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. She is also a recognized leader of preventative cardiology and women's cardiovascular health. Lakshmi, welcome back to MedNet. Well, thank you, Jingjing, for inviting me. I'm excited to talk about this very important topic. Awesome. Now, Lakshmi, is the rate of burnout truly increasing, or is it simply that we were not recognizing it before? That's a great question. I would say it's probably both. I mean, if we think about it, our workload and the demands have increased, especially since the advent of electronic health records and now the pandemic. But also, we never talked about it before. So, you know, people were in silence about what was happening. And I think now that it's been put out there, people are introspectively looking at what they feel. And so, yes, they, they are saying that they're burned out more mm -hmm. too now. Okay, thanks Lakshmi. Some reminders before we get started with today's talk. If you have any questions on the program or any of our programs, you can send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast player. If you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu slash bednet21. There you can find all 120 of our programs to view. And you can also obtain CME credit and ABIM maintenance of certification points there. If you prefer to listen to podcasts, you can find one of those too for us. Search for MedNet21 CME on your podcast app. Now let's get started. Lakshmi? Terrific, thank you. So to recap, I'll be discussing physician burnout, which is a barrier to our well-being. And um, I have no financial disclosures to say, but I will say I'm at risk of burnout and so too are you. And it's not a, once you have it, it's, it's over, but it can happen to any one of us throughout our career span. Um, and it can reoccur as, as well. And so this is important to discuss. And so what are the objectives for today? One is I'd like to define burnout and identify the repercussions of physician burnout. Two, uh, to identify key contributors to burnout amongst physicians. And then three is to review potential well-being solutions on a professional and personal level. I do want to make one caveat here. I, I mention physician a lot, but much of this also um, expands to our entire care team. Uh, we are not working in silos, and so much of what you learn today can be also applied to your um, entire care team. But I want to take a step back and talk to you about um, the story of canaries. So you see this little canary here on, on the left side of the screen. And canaries are known to um, be sort of like Tweety Bird. They sing beautiful songs and they're humming and, and, and whatnot and happy uh, uh, birds. 
Well, the miners and the coal mines have used canaries in a different fashion. They have them down there in the coal mines to, um, they not just sing songs, but when the um, carbon monoxide levels get too high, with the canaries having higher heart rates, smaller lung capacity, they stop singing because they're dying. And so they've used that to kind of recognize when the environment is unsafe. This is for decades um, that has been used. And now, there is a change with the animal rights movement that canaries are no longer used and there's newer technology. But it is this insight that has allowed miners to say, gosh, if the canaries aren't surviving, there's something wrong in this environment and we need to leave immediately before one of us crashes. So when this happened, what did the coal miners uh, organizations and leaders do? Well, they didn't say canaries work harder, we're gonna give you gas masks and protect yourself. Um, and let's make you stronger. They actually said, we need to fix this environment that you're in so something is wrong in the environment. And if we now get back to medicine, many would say that the um, physician burnout is really a canary in the minefield and that the burnout uh, that we're experiencing is telling everyone that it isn't something that is innately wrong with the individual, but it actually is something in the environment that needs to be addressed. And, and so we need to make changes to um, see this happen. And uh, is it a possibility um, of having well-being in our organization? Yes. I think there are ways, and, and we'll discuss, of how to improve that. And if you have the right team, you can bring back some joy in medicine. If you create the environment that is safe and feels psychologically safe, and it's a learning environment as well as a helping environment, we can make a difference for our patients and, and ourselves as well. So the World Health Organization has uh, defined um, burnout as an occupational hazard or syndrome that uh, occurs when one experiences in a chronically stressful environment, exhaustion, um, detachment, and lack of accomplishment. So that exhaustion could be physical or emotional exhaustion. And yes, when we all went through medical school, we experienced exhaustion, but that exhaustion is transient. This exhaustion that people experience when, it's bur when they're feeling burned out is continual. There is no end in sight for them. And the detachment is when they start really separating themselves. They don't really have that same care for their patients as they used to, so they may um, be more cynical in work. They may be thinking, gosh, you know, I hope no patient shows up today, or things like that where they're just not there and enjoying it. And then the lack of personal accomplishment, they just don't feel like they're good enough is, is, is a problem as well. And as I said before, this is not just a physician thing, these kinds of feelings, but it certainly is the entire team. And when we think about burnout, um, and how do we as a physician community compare to the general population? This is a nice study that the Mayo Clinic did um, along with the um, AMA and many others across the country. And in, on this graph, you can see in green, the physicians are in the green bar, and then the general working population in the US is in the orangish red bars. And, and what you see is that in 2011, the burnout rates were high amongst physicians compared to the general population. And it kind of peaked at 2014 where more than 50% of the physicians were experiencing burnout. And now in 2020, this is uh, pre around the time of the pandemic, it was 40% er, 
early on in the pandemic phase, I would say. And um, what happened with the U.S. general population? They pretty much stayed somewhat stagnant. So there's these waves that are happening, and especially high waves amongst our physician group. And then comparing the physicians versus the general population, similar colors and graphs, and looking at satisfaction work-life balance, you can see the heights of the bars have switched now. That the general population have experienced more work-life balance at all years compared to the physician population. And so there is this disparity that's occurring between us physicians and the general population. And, and so you can see here that uh, the rates of burnout can really vary between 35% to 54% amongst nurses and physicians. And it really depends on the year and what's going on um, in the environment. And we also want to stop and say that our trainees are experiencing it at much higher rates as well, at 45 to 60%. And looking at data um, since the pandemic, the, words have wor the percentages have worsened since then. And because of all of this, there's been a huge cost in the healthcare industry. And you can see billions of dollars that we are um, expending because of these high turnover rates. So if we shift back to pre-2005-ish or so, um, you know, much of us in the healthcare space um, heard from the Institute of Healthcare and Information, the IHI, about the triple aim that we needed to work on improved patient experience, improved outcomes, while also working really hard to lower the costs to, um, in, in it. so it was a tripartite kind of mission there. But I would say that we need to really shift to the quadruple aim, where that we cannot provide lower costs, improved outcomes, and improved patient experience without adjusting for provider well-being. And even more importantly, now we're shifting to the quintuple aim. It's not just about provider well-being, but it's about health equity and the uh, diversity, inclusion, um, and belonging that needs to occur in healthcare as well in order to provide the best experiences for our patients as well as to provide the best experience for us as clinicians. And so also I want to shift and say, well, what is, what is well-being? Um, when we talk about it. I've given you the definition of burnout, um, but what, what is well-being? And well-being can be in sort of a 10-dimensional uh, platform here. And here's Ohio State's um, logo on it. And, and we talk about career well-being and, and that environment that we're going to discuss today. But there's environmental well-being. Um, there's social well-being of being in the right social uh, environments. Digital well-being. Are we separating ourselves from our, not just electronic health records, but from social media, from our cell phones at night? Are you keeping your uh, phone at your uh, nightstand? Are you quick, always checking emails? Or are you separating yourself and having some mental space and time for yourself? Financial well-being is important to discuss. Um, and are we investing well? Are we planning for the future? Our own physical well-being, which, um, you know, surprisingly, our data shows that many of us physicians who are recommending 150 minutes of moderate aerobic exercise for our patients, we're not even doing that. Intellectual well-being is important. Creative well-being, are we having time to do the creative outlets that we need? Emotional well-being is so important and so missed within healthcare. 
for a variety of reasons. And then spiritual well-being is the 10th uh, area as well. People think that, you know, you can, when we talk, think about burnout and well-being, there it's the antithesis. So you're either burned out or you're well. And I would say that is not true. That we, it's all along a spectrum of well-being. And sometimes you're going to be burned out. And that's the far end negative aspect of well-being. And then there's going to be where you're really well. But many people reside in that in-between grayish, yellowish area where things are kind of happening. Um, you might be more stressed at times or other times. And, and I would also say that what I find stressful or very hard on me is going to be different for you. And um, much like you think about uh, the gas tanks that are in our cars, and every car or truck or vehicle or um, has a different size gas tank. And what it takes to keep it full is going to vary. And I would say what keeps us full and resilient and happy and finding joy and well-being is going to be different for each of us individual. So just because I may be more resilient than the next person or more stressed than the next person doesn't mean the next person's experiencing in the same way. And we have to be cognizant of that to be really respectful to each other. Um, so, well, what are the repercussions of physician burnout? There's the personal and professional. Um, some of the personal uh, repercussions when someone's burned out, they're having social issues and there are higher rates of broken relationships and divorce amongst them. Uh, alcohol or substance use is higher. The depression rates, anxiety rates are, tend to be higher. It's not that they have to coexist, but it does happen in some people. And then um, death rates are higher and we know that um, almost one physician a day passes away from suicide in the United States. That's a one too many doctors. Um, too many of us are passing away. And, and, that, and then the numbers in the rest of healthcare is also high. And so we need to be supportive and recognize it to make a difference um, and so that we're not losing our colleagues. The professional ramifications are there's um, a decreased uh, patient satisfaction, there's um, decreased uh, 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 quality metrics, and there's more uh, medical errors that occur when people are burned out, uh, decreased quality of care, and then high turnover, as we've discussed as well. So I'm going to share some data that we've done uh, in cardiology through the American Co College of Cardiology, our national data, that I got to lead that uh, survey. And what we were showed, and this is pre-pandemic, that 27% of our cardiologists are experiencing burnout, and only 24% are enjoying work, and almost 50% are highly stressed. Now, we're all stressed, and stress can vary, but the problem is, is that if 50% of us are stressed, it, what is it going to take? What is that tipping point to tip more of us into the burnout? Or better, let's strategically, how can we tip more people into being enjoying their work? Um, and as I said, this is pre-pandemic, and our data post-pandemic has shown much higher rates of uh, burnout amongst us physicians. Our data also shows that um, it can really vary based on career stage. Now, in cardiology, we have consistently shown in this and other surveys that the highest group of experiencing burnout is actually in the mid-career group. Other professions within medicine have it actually in their trainees and early career. For some reason in cardiology, it's us mid-career um, cardiologists. And the survey that we used was the Mini-Z survey, where um, the uh, uh, cardiologists were asked to uh, these 10 questions on um, 
different aspects of like how their electronic health record um, time is spent at home. Uh, what's their work in atmosphere like? Do they feel like they're proficient in uh, electronic health records? Do they have good control over their workload? Um, do they feel that their professional values align with their department leaders? And then uh, the burnout question was using their own definition of burnout. Are they enjoying work? Do they feel highly stressed or are they experiencing different um, kinds of symptoms of, of burnout? And what we showed was that the burned out cardiologists, all of these work environments, a negative aspects of it was much higher amongst burnout cardiologists and then the stressed then followed by the enjoyed work. And so that definitely shows us that we need to make a change. And then when we looked at some other characteristics, burned out cardiologists were more likely to say that their family life responsibilities hindered their ability to do their professional work. They were less satisfied with achieving professional goals and less satisfied with financial compensation. And they were more likely to experience discrimination. And those who weren't experiencing burnout, so they were either enjoying their work or felt highly stressed or stressed, those two groups said they felt they were treated fairly at their job, they felt valued in their profession and their contributions matter. What is stark startling in both in our cardiology data as well as in other data is, is that if someone is experiencing burnout, they're more likely not to recommend a career in medicine. And that's problematic because in the beginning you heard how we're having a physician shortage. And if we ourselves, who used to love medicine, are no longer recommending, what is the field going to look like in the future? Our data, we looked at some of the predictors of burnout and we saw that obviously those who were highly stressed um, or had no control over their workload was more of a prediction of burnout. Working in a hectic environment, not feeling your values were aligned, um, and um, not, and even those that said that they needed to negotiate for support staff and that was really important for them was a predictive burnout. So that kind of tells you the environment wasn't what they liked. Um, other national data on burnout, stepping away from cardiology, had shown that some of the drivers are feeling isolated in the field. Malpractice suits, that causes a lot of tension for each of us, even if you don't go all the way, but just knowing that you're, you're named or there's a potential of being named is a high stressor for us. Our excessive workloads, which skyrocketed since the pandemic, um, but even pre with all those MyChart messages that patients send us, our call schedules, if you're on RVU-based pay, um, those affect our burnout rates. Having low self-compassion, how do we treat ourselves? Um, are we compassionate with ourselves like we treat others? And uh, having a low compassion, self-compassion is associated with um, being burned out. Um, higher responsibility and have, feeling like your values are misaligned. These are the drivers for physicians and they're separate drivers that are for our nursing staff and our allied health. Um, but one thing is, is to recognize is that we work as a team and so if I take all my excess of work and give it to the nurses, that's just going to burn them out and turn them over. But how do we work efficiently together is going to be the importance. And so when we look at our um, careers as physicians, we know that there are some inherent stressors in our field that we can't help. I mean, we know that we are going to be dealing with critically ill patients. We know we're going to be at the, there are going to be some patients that we can't help them the way they would like. We can be there for them. And so there are inherent stressors. We know that sometimes our call schedules are really taxing on us. We also know there are some inherent rewards. And what are those rewards? 
those are what drove us into medicine. The aspect of healing and being there for families and making a difference is what drove us here. And those are rewards. But what happens is, is that some of us are in environments that there's added stress. And so that added stress may be, you know, with the shortages that you need to take on more, do more things. And, and that we can take to a certain point and our resiliency factors can help us to a certain point. And we do get added rewards. But after a while, those added rewards of increased um, bonuses, it can't actually negate the added stress. And there's that tipping point. And all of us are different uh, in terms of that. But then eventually, no amount of a bonus, no amount of vacation time can really um, um, counteract that added stress. And so that's where we need to um, consider um, making a difference for ourselves. In medicine also, we are really feeling, a, feeling cognitive dissonance from what our professional values are and what our systems value. You know, we really value our patient interaction, spending that time with the patients, but our systems really value um, the, the business aspect and money aspect of it. And, and it's not just our own healthcare organizations, but it's CMS and everybody else of how much you're paid and how you have to have shorter visits with patients. And we value literature and learning about the science, but what we end up having to face is, well, no, you need to learn about what the payers want and what the other regulations are and spend more time there. We value being doctors and clinicians and caring for our patients and being there for them. But what do we spend more of our time doing? We spend more time behind the electronic health records, typing or on prior authorization calls, not with our patients. What drove us into medicine is that patient aspect, not this um, more clerical aspect of our care. In medicine, especially those of us who are older are used to um, uh, and worked uh, more in autonomy and having control of our um, uh, workloads and, and making decisions that may uh, help knowing what the economical ramifications could be but feeling that control and now we're more in managerial we're being managed and that's hard and then we all um, say medicine is an art we enjoy the art of medicine and 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 caring for our patients the way it should be done but instead it's a business aspect of what makes sense for our organizations, what makes sense for the US um, economy, and what makes sense for the insurance agencies. And so we're losing that artwork that we used to own. And that causes a lot of cognitive dissonance and what people like, even if they're not experiencing the higher workload, that cognitive brain power can be taxing on them. And so how do um, we like to look at um, well-being? I think that, um, professional fulfillment really should be our goal. And the only way to get there is to and understand how to develop a strategy is to have survey data. So burnout is the metric that we're looking at, but well-being is actually our goal. And who's responsible? Our healthcare organizations are at the bottom of that pyramid on the right, and I think our healthcare organizations or group practices um, have a great responsibility. Um, as well as the government and the insurance agencies. And our medical societies have an uh, uh, opportunity to really be advocating for change. And then each of us as an individual also needs to own our own well-being and be part of the solution and work with our organizations um, and not be adversarial in, in this. Um, and, and then um, how does the strategy look like? We need to look at working at a culture of wellness 
looking at how we can um, impact personal resiliency and how do we impact practice efficiency. And I want to say that this whole field of well-being and burnout in medicine is really still in its infancy. And there's so much to be done and so much to learn from each other and so much forgiving that we need to do of how to get it right takes time as well. Um, and I'm a preventative cardiologist, so I like to look at things in prevention. And, it, and I think we need to incorporate all stages of prevention um, in our strategy. So we've talked a lot about burnout, and so that's really secondary prevention in my eyes. We need to talk about primary prevention, so those high-stress people. How do we tip them over into being well and prevent them from going into the burnout stage? But then we also need to really focus on primordial prevention. Those people that are well, on the things that are happening, what's keeping them there? And as I said before, that we can all transition throughout all of these different stages back and forth in our careers, but what is it that's keeping us, what is, so what is that magic sauce to us when we're well or at the lower end of high stress? And how do we keep ourselves into the well category is gonna be the key. Um, if you're in academia, um, there has been data on um, career fit amongst academic faculty, and this one survey um, looked at people and said that, you know, really the faculty members, about 34% of them felt burned out. But the thing that was the greatest predictor of not being burned out was those who spent at least 20% of their time on some activity that was most meaningful for them. And so it might have been the research part of their, their week or education, administration, but many of them felt that it was the, the, the patient care aspect that they found most meaningful. And I say patient care, not clerical work, but the patient aspect of their care. Um, as um, we look at well-being, I, I said that we all have a role. And I want to say that um, we need to think of the wellness-centered leadership model when we're looking at what our roles are. And um, you don't have to be have a title to be a leader. We are all leaders, whether we like to think of it or not. We are leaders, and naturally, as physicians, we're leading the the unit team, your clinic team, whatever it is, your rounding team. And so at the base or what the first thing we need to do, we need to care about people always. That's utmost, care about each other and ourselves too. Um, that is essential. You know, you need, you hear on the planes that you need to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you help put it on anyone else. And that also is about well-being. And then we need to cultivate individual and team relationships. We can only work together and feel to better together and make a change if we actually truly care about each other. And how can you care about each other and care for each other is when you have relationships with each other. You can see people as a whole at that time. And then as leaders, we need to inspire change. Remember, we what our actions are, what our words are, what our non-words verbal uh, behaviors are, really can change an environment and impact the entire group. And so that's uh, essential um, on how we can influence it. And um, I'd like to quote uh, Christine Sinsky, who um, is uh, at the AMA and leads the well-being efforts. While burnout manifests an individual, it actually originates in systems. So let's shift to like what are some foundational programs that all uh, organizations should have. Um, and, and I would say like, 
you need one, a safety net resource for clinicians in distress. And, um, and that would involve campaigns really to reduce stigma uh, of mental health uh, conditions and uh, increasing access to mental health resources. Well, we struggle with that in medicine, and why is that? Is is because the stigma is so real. Um, whether you know we tell our patients they you know seek mental health care, but for ourselves it, it's a real barrier. And some of the barriers are that our hospital uh, credentialing boards may ask questions on mental health, and people feel that when it's asked um, in certain manners, that it may they may be judged, and so they they don't seek care so that they don't have to disclose it. Um, but there are ways to reword it such that um, is it really impacting your care now and your ability to care for patients? Very different questions. And so there are nuances that many uh, of us are advocating nationally to change across. And then our um, state licensors um, across the country also ask invading invasive questions that then drive people that gosh you know if I seek care mental health care then I might be dinged and might not get licensed and so those are real things that need to be changed and so there are organizations that are out there and your professional organizations and our own medical organizations that are really trying to advocate um, for change in that other ways to um, create safety nets is a peer-to-peer -peer support. So re um, having a formalized peer-to-peer -peer support. So when there's recognition that some uh, event has occurred in the system, in the hospital, or just a clinician who's in, in dire uh, stress, having a support group for them to, to reach out to is very helpful. But I do want to pause and say, and I said it before, that suicide is real in medicine. Mental health conditions are real. And... Um, you, you know, we need to be looking out for each other. And so if you recognize a change in someone, stopping and asking them, how are you? And not just a quick, how are you? But really um, letting them know that you care is important. But if you are in listening to this and you're in dire stress or you know of someone who is stressed, physician or non, they need to seek care. So if it's an emergency, call 911 or go to your local emergency room. Um, there is the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, and the number has changed, so you can call or text 988 or chat 988lifeline.org. Um, the Physician Support Line came out uh, at the time of the pandemic, and it's a volunteer service by uh, psychiatrists across the country who provide almost 24-7 support for um, uh, physicians and trainees in, in need. Ohio has the Ohio Care Line, there's the SAMHSA Disaster Distress Helpline, and then there's a Veterans Crisis Line as well. So important numbers to remember um, or, or to look up, and if you can't remember them all, 911 in emergencies and 988 um, for the crisis line. In addition, the Ohio State Medical Association has a well-being care service, and you can see uh, the email here. And what it entails is you just take a brief, totally confidential assessment for your mental and emotional health. They don't ask you your name or anything. Um, and then you receive recommendations for mental health services in your community because many people don't know how they can connect. And they have the option, if needed, to privately connect with a licensed mental health professional. 
um, outside of the medical records and so forth. So it's a nice uh, resource. And, and I want to say that this OSMA Wellbeing Care Service is not just for physicians, even though it's done by the OSMA. They are recommending and promoting it for your entire care team, so everyone in your hospital um, system can use it, and spouses or significant others in the medical field. So everyone um, can, can access that for free. Um, other things for um, support that uh, institutes can do is professional uh, coaching. Um, this is one study that showed that um, uh, coaching is beneficial. Um, and what they did was they took physicians and um, randomized them to an interventional group where they got six months of professional coaching. Um, and uh, which included one hour of initial professional coaching, coaching session and then five 30-minute sessions every two to three weeks within a five-month time span. And what they showed was the interventional group versus the control group. Those that received the coaching had um, lower rates of emo emotional exhaustion, lower rates of high emotional exhaustion. Their overall burnout rates were um, uh, about 22 percent points different. Um, in prevalence, the resilience within the uh, intervention group was higher, and quality of life was also higher in those who received coaching. We often think of coaching as if something bad has happened, and so now you're being referred to coaching, but there is professional coaching that's there, not because you're a bad apple or that they want you to fix some kind of interpersonal um, issues that you may have, but really how to be an effective leader, how to self-manage, and other things that are they're really important. Um, other um, resource second foundational program is resource to address the need of specific groups uh, that are um, in transition. So thinking about uh, transition and onboarding support for new hires. Many people come into these systems and don't know anyone, don't know how, what are the necessary steps. So that's going to be key. Resources that are specific to different uh, career stages is, is important. Um, and, uh, you know, our senior cardiologists off, uh, and senior physicians feel left out often. And so there is flexibility that can be given to them so they can continue to work so, um, and reduce their burnout and allow them to enjoy medicine and reduce um, the workforce shortage. We really need to make sure that we have parental leave policies, making it safe to for people to have um, parental leave and support during medical leave is essential as well. Um, we all at some point may have a time where we might need to take medical leave and supporting each other and reducing the stigma associated with it is important. There's an array of evidence-based self-care and wellness promotion offerings that most organizations have of how to stay, uh, to help us stay well. There's resources for phys physical, social, emotional, and mental well-being. Um, the issue with it is, is that many people don't have time to take, so being creative as organizations on giving um, people that time is, is going to be important, and creating the culture that it's, it's accessible um, and socializing it is important. Um, another a foundational program for organizations is leadership development programs to promote inclusive leadership and the psychological safety is going to be key. It's important to survey um, the employees' relationship with their leaders and do they feel included and do they feel uh, cared for and respected and that there's um, some uh, uh, opportunities for growth that are being uh, given to them. And, and then, um, you know, we're not all born leaders and making sure that we're not just 
criticizing our leaders, but we're working with them to train them and coach them into these development opportunities so they can cultivate their leadership skills because they truly want what's best for you as well. But it's not taught to us in medical school, and so we need to work uh, on that. And giving regular feedback is going to be key. I guess one of the things that I do want to break and say is, is like for any of these well-being uh, aspects that I'm talking about, you really need someone in your organization who lives and breathes about well-being. And so an organization can be successful if they have someone who is really spending a lot of their time focused on well-being and looks at everything in the organization from a well-being lens is, is a, a necessary step to have any of this to be successful. Another foundational program is deli deliberate programs to promote collegiality and community at work. And there can be lots of different things. There's data showing commensality groups with structured discussion can reduce burnout. Making sure that your organization has social events and recognition. Um, the Schwartz Rounds is one that's been published and available at many institutes as well. Storytelling events of how people have you know, had struggles and how they've overcome them. Having um, true physical space that allows that collegiality and community at work, the clinician lounge is one example. Um, and then uh, programs to mitigate inclusivity and mistreatment is gonna be essential um, as well. And then assessing well-being in its driver dimensions is gonna be key. Um, we cannot have a strategy or these foundational programs without knowing what what is the current um, temperature in our organization what are the things that are impacting it and how and then what is the what is the impact that happens when we make these changes so system-wide approaches um, are, are necessary to address these irritant work factors and Muhammad Ali had said it isn't the mountains ahead to climb that where you're at it's the pebble in your shoe and that is all the little tiny things in our day if we think about it and pause gosh, this thing is irritating, this thing is irritating, this is, and these little things can then create their own mountains. And so making sure that we're figuring out a way to address them. And one of the biggest factors for most of us physicians is our inbox management. And, and there is no systemized approach appropriately done at, at, at most organizations, or, or I would say even more work units, because you know that's something that has to be done more at the local level and not at the organizational level. But working with your team, and that team is your colleague physicians, but also the nurses and anyone else who touches those in baskets, of how do we address it? And when an, a message comes in, there's four things that could be done. One could be a delete, nothing further. You know, when the patient says thank you, I, I would assume that, okay, my patients are grateful, but I don't need to see a thanks because that's an extra click for my staff to send to me and then me to delete. So just better to end the message game and just delete it, have your staff delete it. Delegate, so when the message comes to your staff, then they need to delegate what needs to be done with it. Like, does it does this just need to go to the scheduler? Does, does it need to go to the biller? Or does it really need to go to the clinician? Defer it. Do we just need to get more information from the patient? Either they need to send us stuff or call us, and then we can decide action, or can it just be done? And does the staff just do it or they give it to us and we just do it and click done? Those are um, things. And how that streamlines is going to be very different depending on your practice, your group, and, what, and, and, and so forth. But you have to be intentional, and that's where we all can have a role. Making sure that we have 
right work and right responsibility as a key part of what we're doing. And, and what that means is, is that everyone's really working at their top of their license. And um, you're not having your nurse practitioner being your scribe. That's unnecessary. Have your nurse practitioner seeing patients. That's what they've been trained to do. And they're working side by side with you. And if you need a scribe, get a scribe. Um, whatever that may be, or figure out how to be more effective in your notes and reduce the amount of note bloat that you might be having. But also create, you know, in order for your team to be effective, there has to be team morale. And team morale comes by developing relationships, everyone feeling like they're part of the team and everyone understanding that what the greater cause is, what are we trying to achieve? What are we trying to improve? And then setting expectations and then assessing and improving. And remembering that it's not finger pointing, it's working together to find solutions together. Um, and, and then there's deep implementation actions that you can do locally as well as um, at your organization level. You know, reducing the alerts that we get, simplifying login. Like at Ohio State, we have the badge login. That's really been helpful. Um, extending times before auto logout. Um, decreasing password-related uh, burdens, like so are there things that we don't need to keep entering our passwords for, um, reduce the clicks and hard stops in ordering, eliminate requirements for password uh, revalidation, and that depends on, on your state about uh, script signing and password revalidation. Reducing note bloat is so important. Um, it, there's just so much stuff in the notes that just carry forward or are auto-populated and are they necessary when they're already somewhere else in the chart? And then reducing inbox notifications. One simple thing about inbox notification is, is we'll have the habit, um, and especially when electronic health workers first came out that, you know, now we can all communicate with each other. So every time I see a patient, I, I need to send my uh, primary care doctors uh, a message or a, a copy of my letter or my visit. And I'm sure that, you know, in the initial, that's great. It's, you know, ease of communication. But now I'm sure they don't really want to see my letters. Unless there's something that they need to act upon, there is no need for me to send a letter. Unless it's a, cons a consult, then there's some regulatory things. But just a routine follow-up visit, they don't need to see my note. If I'm not changing something that they need to address, follow, or be truly aware of. If I'm just in a hypertension medicine and the patient's coming back to me, they don't need to see that, right? Um, and so those are ways that we can kind of change the culture of what inbox notifications are and what um, things are happening. So I, I've shared a lot, and um, th but as I said, this is an this field is its infancy, and now we have a national plan for health workforce well-being that was just launched last year, but it too has plans of what should be addressed, but how do you act upon it is where they're at. They're in their early stages of what we need to do. But they eloquently recognized that there are a lot of key players in our well-being um, that you can see on the slide, and that it's not one single person owns it, but we all need to work together from the federal government all the way down to our patients need to help us and recognize what needs to be done. And so these are some of the priority areas for health workforce well-being, um, much of which we've already covered in the different aspects of the foundational programs um, that, that I had mentioned that you can do as well. So I would say stay tuned because in the next five years, we're going to see a great change in what this is all going to look like. And I want to say that, you know, along with it being in this infancy, if we look back, 
prior to 2005, it was the era of distress. There was a lack of awareness. We had a culture of perfection amongst us physicians. We felt like we had godlike qualities and patients told us that too. And we really had a training mindset where it's a rites of passage. You know, like we, most of us older ones, it's like we, it was a bragging right of like how much sleep you got or didn't get and how much you didn't get to eat or, or like how many STEMI cases you saw, whatever it is. That was just the mindset that we had and that there really was no limits on work. Our relationship with administration was mutual neglect and administrators, there was disregard for physician distress Payers and regulators really didn't care um, about the impact on us. Um, and uh, us as individuals would neglect or ignore our own stressors um, and um, really be ignorant ourselves of what is wellness. And I would say right now we're in the physician well-being 1.0 where we're aware of burnout. And that's why we have programs like this. And it's a trying to establish a culture of wellness. We are now shifted to more hero-like qualities and that we're no longer godlike. Our training mindset is competency-based framework rather than um, walk through the fire like we uh, had experienced in the past. Um, our relationship with administrators can be adversarial. And you know adversarial relationships never get us far. And uh, you know our mindset also is that we need to balance personal and professional lives, and and that the administrator mindset is that it's a zero zero sum game problem, and then regulators are aware of the impact that it's ha that they're having on us, but are they changing? Not entirely, very minimal there. And our approach to our individual distress is that we need to treat ourselves, and and the problem is us. Um, and then, you know, we're trying to teach physicians tips and tricks to optimize our ability to use electronic health records, which that technology is suboptimal for us. Um, and so, but, but it's fixed me, not the technology kind of mindset that we're in or environment that we're in right now. And, you know, the return on investment is physician well-being is a necessary cost center. Where do we need to be? And some organizations are already shifting uh, to that end, and that is, it's, an, it's a shift of action, and that we, it should be a culture of vulnerability, and that we need to be self-compassionate, and that we are human, and we have human qualities as physicians, and not uh, this hero or godlike quality, and that our um, training should really be competency and holistically caring for clinicians, um, rather than uh, this uh, rite of passage mindset and we have to have a learning environment that creates that and that we need infrastructure and leadership to advance well-being which we are doing at the Ohio State and you know we need to partner with our administrators to create solutions to be effective in in what we do and that this is a non-zero sum game problem and that we work with our administrators so all can win, and it's a win-win for all. And that in the future, hopefully, there's regulations and administrative decisions that are influenced by the needs of the clinician, and, and which then impacts the best care for our patients uh, as well. And our approach to individual distress should be that we should prevent distress and promote professional fulfillment. And that we need to develop new models of team-based documentation, order entry, and that we really need to demand our EHR products from vendors to be better than they are, and to be focused on what is the end user outcome of it. And our value and investment is that physician well-being is a foundational value and core organizational strategy. 
and not just an afterthought. And so what happens though is, is when we're trying to incite culture change, which culture is so hard, there's this pressure of survival anxiety and learning anxiety. And the survival anxiety is that, gosh, we really need to make a change because we're having suicide, we're having high turnover, we're having poor patient satisfaction and poor quality of care. But then there's this learning anxiety that makes it difficult. That, gosh, are we gonna do it right? How's it gonna happen? Is everyone gonna be happy? All of this stuff negative. And so they push on each other, and so nothing gets changed. But what we really need to do is to, is to we can't change survival anxiety. That is there. So we need to reduce the learning anxiety. And so to, to create a place where there has to be psychological safety and that, yes, we can do it. Are we going to get it right the first time or second time? No, but we're making an active change. And the only way to move forward is to attempt some change. And when you lower the size of that arrow, then we can make some meaningful input into creating a culture. And well-being seems like, oh my gosh, this is an ocean that we have to swallow and that it, there's no way we can do this. It's just too big. But we need to remember that there is a small sphere of control that we can each have. And that might be in our small little work unit, in our clinic, in our office, or on the floor that we work on. And we can work together, and you have to partner with your entire team and inspire people to make that change. Then there's a sphere of influence. Like those are the things that are kind of bigger and out of your scope, but you can kind of help influence or negotiate with the hospital on more of the organizational widespread things. And the sphere of concern is those regulatory things that are harder that we can't as an individual do on our own, but we can work with our professional societies and our hospitals to influence some of those regulatory changes. And so we all have a role in how well-being is going to be in the future. And so we should not be on the sidelines, we should be actively involved in making this change. So in conclusion, know the drivers of burnout, be on the lookout for your inner self and those around you. Remember, burnout is more than just a resiliency issue. And that professional fulfillment involves a culture of wellness, efficiency of practice, and personal resilience. And recognize that you can impact your well-being and also you need to partner with your organization to make meaningful change. And this truly is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It will take time. Thank you. Wow, that was wonderful. Thank you so much, Lakshmi. Um, and also, I just want to say thank you for thinking of us primary care doctors. You're right. I don't need every single, uh, I don't need a letter every single time my patient sees a specialist. So really great insights. That was so helpful. Um, so I'm curious, you know, if uh, when we're bringing a new team member on, bringing on a new physician, are there certain risk factors we can look for that we could try to mitigate their burnout? Um, are there any individual factors that we can look for? Well, burnout isn't an individual factor. It manifests in the individual. So there's nothing that you can find in the individual to, to predict. What you can look at is what is the work environment like and you have to improve the work environment. So what you wanna do is actually, is look at how's everyone doing in your work unit right now? Or mm -hmm. why is there turnover? And make those changes before the individual comes. Mm -hmm. And also create a psychological safety. You know, people that come into new positions feel like they're on an island their own. They don't have social connections, especially since COVID. People don't feel connected to each other. They, they don't know what they don't know and they don't know who they can go to. And so creating that safe space is essential and it's so that they can ask questions without letting things build up. Uh -huh. Definitely. Now, um, what if you are starting to see signs of burnout? Is it 
pretty easily reversible. Um, how long does it typically take to see someone kind of turn the course? Yeah, I mean, sometimes people don't recognize they're burning out, right? Because we're just in this hamster circle, right? So you have to really pause and be like, gosh, how am I feeling? Often people, other people notice it, right? Your clinic staff may notice it, your mm -hmm. family may notice it, and they might tell you things, but you're just in this whirlwind of things and, and you don't pause. Um, is it re easily reversible? Yes and no. I mean, it's not always easy to change our schedules or adjust life in that way, but you can be an advocate for changing that environment and working with your team. Mm -hmm. And you've got to do it in a collegial way. If it becomes mm -hmm. adversarial, you can't. And you can improve it. I mean, there are people that burned out and changed things either in their work environment or switched jobs or you know went part-time. They did something that, that made it better. I mean, some, some people have tried mindfulness. There's lots of different things out there, but I can't give you a solution for anyone because every individual is different because it depends on their environment mm -hmm. and what their resiliency is like and what is impacting them. Mm -hmm. Now, you as a leader of well-being, are there examples of success um, to help people with burnout that you can give? Yeah, that's that's a loaded question. I mean, because as I said, it just depends on an individual of what is affecting them. And I, I think that, you know, people need to be engaged, right, in, in their work environment and see. I, if you pause and say, like, gosh, this one thing is bothering me, then let's think about potential solutions and work together to partner, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's, uh, I would say that everyone's so different in what their needs are. Um, one resource I, I, I would like to put out there is, is the AMA has a resource called Steps Forward on their website, mm -hmm. and it's a free to anyone, and you don't have to be a member. And on there, they have a lot of um, uh like webinars and podcasts on a lot of the things that I've talked about and ways of how to optimize your practice, change the culture, work in a team. So I, you know, if people are interested in that, that's a great place to start. Okay, awesome. Now, you know, like you mentioned, we're in the infancy, change is hard. Um, what are some ways to kind of promote organizational buy-in and investment into well-being and decreasing burnout? That's ter terrific, and and um, organizational buy-in is is hard. Um, many uh, institutes may be asked looking at their turnover data now, so you can ask them ab about that and and mm -hmm. working with them and partnering with them of like how do we reduce turnover because that's an interest, a financial interest mm -hmm. for them. But also organizations are starting to ask about burnout because it's the thing to do at this time, and so when you know that's being asked. Work, going to your leadership and saying like, hey, I know the numbers aren't going to be great, but I want to be part of the solution. So how can I help you? And, and that's key. You know, you, at any organization, you need someone who thinks, breathes, lives about well-being. Mm -hmm. they, it doesn't mean that they'll fix everything and everything will be right the first time. But if you don't have anyone doing that, then it's kind of often overlooked and it's an afterthought. Oh yeah, we forgot to add mm -hmm. this on. Rather than someone always advocating, what is that impact on well-being? But physician well-being can't be in an island of its own. It really have to look at the entire care team to get it right. Mm -hmm. Perfect, thank you so much. We're gonna wrap up today's session with a final key point, Lakshmi. Well, remember, burnout is real. Mental health conditions are real and can impact any one of us. But burnout doesn't have to exist. You can all do your own thing to improve well-being in your organization and partner with your organizational leaders. 
Thank you for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging on to ccme.osu.edu and taking our post-test. Join us again next week when my guests, Dr. Jody Grandomenico and Kelly Barnes are here to discuss remote patient monitoring. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.